If you've got your Bible with you, I want you to turn over to the book of Luke. I'm going to try to pick, out, uh, pick up a little bit after uh, where Clay left off last week. And uh, we're, we're doing a series on the cross. And, and today I want to talk about famous last words. And, and in this story, there's uh, people uh, and events surrounding. I mean, last words are, are, are important. And uh, last words of Jesus are, are extremely important. And, and we're going to look at famous last words. And we're going to read, start reading Luke chapter 23. Reading at verse number 32, and if you've got that, say, I got it. Verse 32 says, And there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and criminal and the criminals. The one on the right hand and the one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do not you even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, these are his last words, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the truth of God's word. And I pray, Lord, that you just take our moments together this morning and take the truths that are in this story and and help us to experience and see something and receive something from you that that we've never heard or felt or seen or received ever before. Your word is living and powerful, Lord, and, and I ask that you give us revelation in our heart. Lord, help us to understand what you're saying to us as individuals and as a church and and help us just to receive your word with gladness and let it bring forth fruit a hundredfold. And everybody said, Famous last words. Now, in Luke chapter number 23, what we see is that there were two men that were being crucified on either side of Jesus. Now, these guys were the real deal, they were thugs, they were menaces to society. They were career criminals. You know, as a matter of fact, either of them could have been founded in, in, found in Jerusalem's top ten most wanted list. They were the real deal. They had committed crimes over and over again. They were career criminals. But, but you know, before we were so quick to judge them, you know, as bad of guys as they really were, you know, I found out if, if we look close enough within ourselves... 
If we examine ourselves thoroughly, if we give, us, uh, give ourselves an honest evaluation uh, of who we are at our core, the truth is we really have a whole lot in common with these guys. We actually have more in common with these criminals than we do Jesus. And not only that specifically, you know, the Bible talks about these guys being thieves. Did you know that all of us at our, you know, at our core, at least at some point in time in our life, that we, we, we are guilty of being a thief? You know, you might be thinking, you know what, I, I, I can't, I've never stolen anything. You know, I, I've never robbed a bank. You know, I, I've never stolen somebody's wallet. And you know what, that may be true, but what we do oftentimes is we compare our sins to somebody else's and say things like, you know, you know, you know my sins are not as bad as this person's sins. You know, my, what I've done is not nearly as bad as what that person done. But, but the truth is, you know, when somebody steals a million dollars, what do you call them? A thief. When somebody steals one dollar, what do you call them? You know, the, 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 what, what matters is, is not how much you steal, but why you steal. It is the act of stealing that makes you a thief. And you might say, well, you know what? I cannot knowingly uh, remember any specific time where I have taken anything. Well, how about this? How about, you may not have robbed anybody else, but have you ever robbed God? You know, any time that we fail to give God the glory he deserves, you know what? We're robbing God. Anytime that we uh, fail to give God our best, we are robbing God. Anytime that we fail to give God our time, our talents, and our treasure, we are robbing God. But, you know, even though we are guilty as charged, what we find out in this story is that in this story, we have a message from God. Not only do we have a message from God, we have a message of assurance. We have a message of hope. And, and not just any kind of hope. This story teaches us that there is hope for the worst of sinners and there is hope for the best of sinners. You know, it's an incredible story. It's an incredible truth. And not only do we have a, a, a message, we also have an opportunity. You see, there were two criminals, two thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus. And both of them had an opportunity to make things right with God before they gave up their life through the punishment that they personally deserved for the crimes they committed. So not only do we have a message, we, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to make things right with God. And here's another thing in the story. You find out that not only did both of these thieves have an opportunity, both of these criminals actually prayed. And if you read through that story and if you listen to their last words, both of these guys prayed, but the truth is only one of them was actually saved. But as we examine this story a little more closely, one particular guy gets our attention above the other ones. And, and the reason he gets our attention is because this man received a promise that all of us must receive if we uh, are going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus forever and forever. So in your outline there, there's, there's four things I want to share with you about this story that I believe that we all can relate to. And, and the first thing that I see in this story is I see this man's helpless condition. I think this should be up on your screen. 
The first thing that I see is, is this man's helpless condition. And again, this guy was a true criminal. He wasn't a hypocrite. He was a hardcore criminal. And as you read this story, and you, you read the story in other parts of, in different parts of the other Gospels, you'll find out that this man began to uh, join the enemies of Jesus by heaping his insults uh, at Jesus while he was on the cross. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, it says, In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, this guy, his attitude was just like his partner in crime that was hanging on the other side of Jesus. He began to link arms and join sides. This is what's happening in his life in the beginning by, he, by insulting Jesus. And, and the Bible doesn't say which of these two guys were the greatest sinners, but what we can understand about this story is that both of these guys hanging on each side of Jesus were in the same situation. They were in the same condition. Both of these men were in a place where they were completely and utterly in a position of where they could not do anything to get themselves out of the situation that they were in. They were utterly helpless. Now, one of the things that I, I see in this story is that this particular thief actually represents us all. And... How he represents us is that this guy was completely out of options. You know, it was too late for him to straighten up. It was too late for him to make things right in, in, in terms of relationships, in terms of bringing his life into order. It was too late for him to hope that all of his good works would outweigh his bad works. You understand what I'm saying? It was too late for him to, to try to, to do good and, and hopefully earn his way into heaven. You know, he, he couldn't do any of those things anymore. Why couldn't he do them anymore? Because now he has nails driven through his hands and feet. It was too late. Whatever he had done, he had done. He crossed the line. He had committed the crimes. He had received his, his sentence. And his sentence was, you are going to die through crucifixion. Did you know that you and I both received a death sentence? The Bible said in Romans chapter number 3 that the wages of sin is... That not only is the wages of sin death, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 that, that, that it's appointed once for a man to die and then after that comes what? So listen, it's inevitable, you know. Uh, uh, Justin's favorite quote that I give in, in statistic is, you know, have you noticed that 10 out of 10 people die? The mortality rate is what? Why? Because the soul that sins dies. And the fact that death is coming to each one of us is proof that we have committed sin. Nothing will stop this, this, this chain reaction uh, of sin and death until the Lord himself comes back and makes everything right. So we're just like this guy. He couldn't try to go out and, and live a better life. Because he was a dying man. It says here, verse 39, There were two others with him, criminals, that were led with him to be put to death. Now, here's what I've learned. Being helpless is not necessarily a curse if it ultimately leads us to the one who can save us. You know, sometimes we're so stubborn 
Sometimes we're so hard-headed that we will continue to fight God, we'll continue to procrastinate, we'll continue to try to do things in our own strength until we end up flat of our back, shattered, broken, and, and if we're fortunate enough, still alive. One thing I've learned dealing with a lot of people that have come out of the addiction background is that, you know what, not everybody makes it. Not everybody's rock bottom is that they end up getting another chance at life. Some people's rock bottom ends up being six feet under. Unfortunately, some people are going to have to die. And you know what? Even at the point of death, they're not going to change. I hope to goodness that none of you are in that place right now. Now, you don't have to be a drug addict to be that kind of hardened person. You don't have to be all messed up. You, know, you, you, can, you can work 40 hours a week. You can have a nice home. You can have a, a big bank account. You can drive a nice car. But you can be so hard and so hard, uh, hard-hearted that, that you will resist the very conviction of God that he's placing in you in order to draw him to yourself. Why in the world would anybody want to reject the grace of God? The opportunity to be saved. Why would anybody would want to put that off? I mean, ultimately, I believe that we lack perspective, eternal perspective. But this man, through his place and through the situation he was in, he was in a place where he was completely and utterly helpless. And so that's the first thing that, that I see is happening in this story. Now, the second thing that I see in the story is his remarkable faith. First thing is, I see his, his, his helpless condition. He can't do anything to help himself. It's too late. He's run out of options. His back's against the wall, and not only that, time is running out. He's at a place right now that if, if a miracle doesn't happen, he will die in his sin and will be utterly separated from God for all eternity. And that's a long time. But something happens in this man. Faith happens. You know, I see this, this story, and, and it's possible, as you read it, now the Bible doesn't say this, but it's possible that this man never saw Jesus until that very day. It's possible that, that, that he never saw Jesus, he never heard about Jesus, because he could have been in prison for, for many years, for five years, ten years, for a long period of time. He could have been in prison, and he never met Jesus to that very day. And as these three men were being nailed to their crosses, and then their crosses lifted up and lowered into the hole, there would be no reason whatsoever for this man to believe that he was in the presence of the Savior. I mean, everything that was going on around him, what he could actually see with his visible eye, what was happening to the man right beside him is the same thing that was happening to him. And you know what? It was nothing that was happening that would make him think or believe that, that he was in the presence of somebody so important, so significant. He would have no reason to believe that this was a defining moment for him. There'd be no reason for this man to, to believe that, you know what, that, that this is, this is going to be it for me, that, 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 that I'm in the presence of the Savior and, and everything's going to be all right because, you, because Calvary was a place where criminals died. Not saviors, 
And so he's looking at this and he's going, you know, there's no reason. But, but, but what was it that produced faith in his heart? Listen to this. I want you to think about this. This man believed, this man believed while Jesus appeared to be so helpless that he could not even save himself, much less save anybody else. Yet this man believed. This man believed when Jesus was at his weakest, most vulnerable, most exposed, and most humiliated moment of his entire life, and even in the kind of condition and position he was in, this man believed. I mean, that's incredible to me. It blows my mind. This man believed before darkness covered the earth. This man believed before the earth began to shake. This man believed before the veil was ripped in two. This man believed even before there was evidence of any kind of resurrection that Jesus prophesied would happen after he was buried in a grave for three days. This man believed. Not only that, look, look at what he would see with his visible eye. Here's Jesus on the cross. His head hung down. His body sulked over. His chin to his chest. Nails driven through his hands and feet. Suffocating, struggling to believe. And still, this man believed. I mean, what a pathetic sight. I mean, look, look at... What, what he was observing, and all of a sudden, in this condition, the man believed. What was it? You know, as the blood flowed from Jesus' body, faith flowed from the thief's heart. He believed. I mean, that's an incredible thing. I wonder if you and I were on one side of the cross, how we would respond by looking at Jesus if we were being crucified right beside him. It, it, it's an amazing thing. You know, even some of Jesus' own disciples, after he was raised from the dead and appeared before them, didn't believe. Do you know that? Thomas, after Jesus was raised from the dead, Thomas, he comes to Jesus and said, You know what? If I do not see the scars and touch them, I will by no means believe. I mean, these men walked with Jesus three and a half years. But still, even after he was raised from the dead, he wouldn't believe this thief believed even before the resurrection. That's incredible. It takes faith to believe in that. It takes faith to believe in what your mind and what your eyes say are completely contradictory. So we see this man's helpless condition. Second thing is, we see this man's remarkable faith. The third thing in the story is we see the man's simple prayer. I love this. These are famous last words. So the thief's journey to faith began when he rebuked his partner in crime, and he said this, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly? All of a sudden, at this moment, this man's conscience came alive. It started working. And he recognized something. We ought to fear God. You know, I saw a, a, a post on Facebook the other day. It says, you know, it was one of those meme or memes or whatever you want to call it. I'm too old to even know what the stuff is anymore. God help me. 
Never thought I'd reach this point in my life. People say things like, only God can judge me. He's got this guy going to kiss. Exactly. And that's why you ought to be concerned. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know, the, the, the Bible talks about standing before God on the day of judgment and your eternal destiny being weighed in the balance. These are serious matters. But all of a sudden, this man's conscious, it begins to work. And all of a sudden, he experiences conviction. And he starts to rebuke his other friend that was a criminal as well. And says, you know what? We're here because we deserve to be here. This man's here not because he deserves to be here. Because this man is different than us. And faith was rising in his heart. And and he begins to fear God. Now, the thing that I, I love about the story... But what I found it to be so hard for most people to do is that this thief recognized that he was getting what he deserved. This guy, he, he, he didn't make any excuses. He didn't try to justify himself. He honestly admitted that he was guilty before God, that he had done the things that he had done. And, and here's the thing. This is the thing that I've seen so many people, especially men, for some reason, it is hard for a man to humble himself and admit that he is wrong and repent and ask for forgiveness. We won't even do that with our wives. I I tell Rachel all the time, the Lord knows I have my problems, but being wrong is not one of them. But this man humbles himself. He, 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 he's not trying to justify anything. He said, it is what it is, and I am what I am. What about you? Now, most of us, what we want to do, we try to project an image that's going to present ourselves in a positive light. Let's just take a quick test right now. I don't, you don't have to say it out loud, but it's between you and God. Let's just see if your conscience is working. If I were to ask you, if, would you consider yourself to be a good person, how many of you would actually say, yeah, probably a pretty good person compared to whatever? But that's, that's the way that we think. You know, I don't think I've killed anybody. You know, I don't think that I've, you know, done this or have, haven't done that. But, you know, let's just go with the Big Ten. You guys know what the Big Ten are, right? The Ten Commandments. You know, one of the Ten Commandments are, thou shall not... Lie, right? How many of you, if you've got some backbone here, how many of you are guilty of telling a lie? The rest of you are lying. (laughs) What do you call somebody who tells a lie? Okay. How many of you, again, are guilty of stealing something? For those of you that are saying that you're not guilty of stealing something, I don't believe you because you're liars. <laughs> you can trust a liar, can you? What do you call somebody that steals? Now, don't lift your hands here. 
Jesus said, you've heard it said, of all thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart has committed adultery already. How many of you, I'm just going to go ahead and assume. So, for those of you that think that you're a good person, you've already admitted to me that you are lying, thieving, and adulterer in your heart. And if you were to stand before God just because you've broken three of the big ten, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? Do you think you'd go to heaven? Do you think you'd go to hell? The Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. No thief, no liar, no adulterer shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. doesn't matter if you're a good one or not. There's no good sinners and no bad sinners in heaven, only saved ones. And so if you want to justify your little white lies and go to hell over those, that's a shame. And I read a statistic that says 66% of Christians believe it's okay to tell little, small lies. Are there there little lies? Are there big lies? They're all big to God. How do I know that's true? Because the Bible says if you keep every single one of the commandments and you break just one of them, you're guilty of breaking them all. Now, if God judges us on the day of judgment based on the Ten Commandments, which He will, and you know what? You, you, you know what, what good actually means? Moral purity in thought, word, and deed. If God judges us based on that criteria, and you stand before God saying, Well, I went to church, I, I gave, I got water baptized. All of that stuff, and if that's what you're banking on getting you into heaven, you know, over 75%, well, let me take it back. Over over 55% of Christians in America, and I say Christians, I'm saying professed ones. I'm not saying they're real ones. But those that would say that they're Christian, believe that good works are enough to get them to heaven. What a rude awakening that's going to be. So what are you banking on to get you to heaven? Again, we can learn a lot from this thief. He realized there's nothing he could do to save himself. What about you? Some people think that what Jesus did on the cross was not good enough. But this man repented. And he asked God to forgive him. And with his last request... He accepted responsibility, and he prayed a two-word prayer that Jesus heard and granted forgiveness and eternal life. He said this, you know what? Remember me. He didn't ask to be honored. He asked to be remembered. But it's an honor to be remembered by Jesus. Simple prayer. Really and truthfully, it doesn't take a whole lot uh, to be saved when you're ready to get down to business with God. The problem is people getting to the point to where they're ready to get down to business with God. See, there's a lot of people, because the thief on the other cross, and that's an entire different message, but the thief on the other cross, he tried to justify himself. Save yourself and then save us. He was still in blatant rebellion. 
And so that man on the other side of the cross stood before God in his own righteousness attempting to be justified before God based upon his own good works or lack thereof. Here's the last thing. The last thing is his amazing future. Jesus saw the genuine repentance of this man. And there's two different kinds of repentance. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. The Bible says worldly sorrow works death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. In other words, you can repeat a sinner's prayer all you want, but until you genuinely repent over your sins, it's not going to lead you to salvation. And, 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 you know, I'll be honest with you. I fear for the church in America. I'm absolutely fearful for so many Christians that are putting their faith in an affiliation with a church or a denomination or have their name on a roll book or because they attend a church, because they've been water baptized or, or whatever it may be. It is fearful because there's no fruit in their life. There's no evidence. There's no proof. There's no, there's no change. And I'm not saying this in a judgmental way, but I'm saying this from a place that, that, that is a concern for me. And I'm wondering how many are really genuinely and truly saved. I mean, how many people know what they believe and why they believe it and how they live it? If I came to you and asked you if you were saved and you said, yes, could you take me to the Scriptures in the Bible that you stand upon in order to, 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 to find your, found your theology where you can say, this is why I believe that I will go to heaven when I die. There's so many people that don't even know what they believe. I mean, that would be a terrifying thing for me. There's so many people that say, you know what, I'm saved today because what I did was I responded to an altar call and I prayed a prayer that the preacher led me in, therefore I'm saved. Now, those things can assist you, but those things can't save you. So what about you? What are you basing your eternal destiny on? What somebody told you or what you know. That's some serious, serious business. But this man here, he genuinely repented. Again, he didn't repeat a big fancy sinner's prayer, did he? He didn't speak it all out in King James Version. He didn't bow his head and close his eyes and did all that stuff. And again, I'm not saying that that stuff's wrong, but you can do all that stuff and not be like this man. You can do all those things. This man knew he was guilty, and he was owning it. I am not right with God. I'm getting what I deserved. I am wrong. I am guilty, and I am in need of a Savior. And he just simply said, remember me. That two-word prayer, because it was genuine and real from his heart, and you know what? He was putting 100% of his faith into the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. 
Jesus gave, gives him this incredible promise. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The reunion would be that very day. Think about that. When Jesus was saying, today you'll be with me, what he was saying is, he's talking about, you will enjoy the personal fellowship of being with me today and forever. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That's the same thing that Jesus told his disciples in John 14. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. And I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. You know what? He said that to his disciples. He also said this to the thief. And you know what? The thief has a place today. What a day to be a thief. He woke up that morning and was crucified on the cross. Opened his eyes up that evening in paradise with Jesus forever. What a day to be a thief. It's incredible. The thief would have a place. They'd come to music. You know, maybe you're here and you're thinking, I still don't think that the story has anything to do with me. I, I, I don't agree with what you said. I, I'm not getting anything out of this. Well, well, just think about this. Both of these men had an opportunity to be saved. Both of these men heard the words of Jesus when he said, Father, forgive them. Both of these thieves prayed, but only one was saved. The thief on the other side said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. And think about the consequences of those two decisions at that moment. Think about that for a moment. Those two men are eternally separated from each other forever. Those two men are in two separate places. Even as I preach this this morning, those two men are in two totally different eternal places. One of them is in heaven, the other is in hell. Both of them had opportunity. Both of them heard the words of Jesus. Both of them even prayed out of their mouth, but they are eternally separated. Nothing will ever change that. Their eternal destiny is fixed. It's over with. No more chances. And you know what? One day, it will be our last chance. So I want to urge you. I want to provoke you. I want to compel you. I, I want to warn you. I want to persuade you. I want to convince you. And I know that with my own ability, I cannot do that. If you do not know without 100% assurance that things are right between you and God, do not put it off and walk out of this building this morning without having that assurance. I don't care how long you've been in church. 
I don't care how many messages you can, you've heard preached. I don't care how many songs you've sung. I don't care how many positions you've held. I don't care if you've been water baptized. I don't care about any of those things. If you do not have 100% assurance, by all means, please, get down to business with God today. I'm not trying to be scary. I'm not trying to use fear tactics. If heaven and hell are real, what we do on Sunday morning matters. Let me say that again. If heaven and hell are real, what we do on Sunday morning matters. That's why when I get up here and preach, listen, I preach for a verdict. I don't preach to give you content and information and good points and all that stuff. I do my best to prepare, but at the end of the day, I'm preaching for a verdict. I'm not looking for your response because your response won't change anything for me. But it might change something for you. I love what one man said. I don't do it for the income. I do it for the outcome. Now what separated these two men on the cross, listen, were not the degree of their sin or how good one man was and how bad one man was. What separated these men were not how far one was away from God and how far the other was away from God. What separated these men is that one called on Jesus for help and the other refused it. One said yes, the other said no. One said right now, the other said not yet. That's what separated them. And these two men represent every person in this building this morning. The entire population of the world is not separated between good people and bad people. Separated from saved people and lost people. And it's not separated from the degree of the kind of sin that you've committed. It doesn't matter how far away you are from God or how close you are to God if you've not come to the cross and surrendered your life to Him everybody's in the same position we're lost we need to be saved we need to be forgiven and the cross teaches us that it's possible but it also teaches us that it is impossible with our own human effort if human effort were enough if Jesus needed our good works he would have never had to have given his entire life on the cross and bled out his own lifeblood for us it's humanly impossible for man to be made right with God apart from faith in Jesus And when I say faith in Jesus, I'm not talking about a mental acknowledgement. I'm talking about a surrendered life. And the proof and the evidence of a changed heart is a changed life. And I want to challenge you. If there is no visible evidence that you are a different person, after you prayed and before you prayed, I can promise you that no change has happened. Man, I know it's tough. But I'm just telling you the truth. 
not to be mean, but because I care. Don't just agree with me. Give your life to God. Don't just say amen. Don't just nod and acknowledge. Check your own heart. Am I really saved? Have I really been changed? If not, you need to know and know that you know this is important stuff. Every person separated by what took place on the cross. Last thing's this. When you read this story, we think that this is the last chance for this man to be saved. But in reality, that's not what the Bible says. We ultimately know that it's his last chance because he's going to die that day, right? But this is not his last chance. This is actually his first chance. And for some reason, we think, you know what? One of these days, I'll make things right with God. One of these days, I will come to the place after I live my life and do my own thing. One of these days, you know what? I'll give my life to Jesus for a little fire insurance. That'll be good enough for me. Well, how do you know? Because this story teaches us that, you know what? One man got saved at his first chance. The other man died lost at his last chance. And what makes you think that if you have one last chance, you're going to give your life to Jesus right before you spent thrust into eternity? What makes you think that? This story tells us something completely different. This story says, you know what? Just because you've got one more chance doesn't mean that things are going to be right between you and God or that you're going to make things right between you and God. But one thing about it, one thief recognized, you know what? This is my moment. You know what I believe God's saying this morning? It's your moment too. Somebody's moment this morning don't be like the other thief and put it off. You know, we have more in common with that guy. You know why? Because some of you, you've come over and over and over and over and over and over. And you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. in one of these days, well, one of these days become none of these days. And then what? Stand with me. Here's two very important reasons why you should give your life to Jesus. Number one, we don't know when we're going to die. Not everybody gets a warning. Not everybody remains conscious after they've been in the car wreck. Two Sundays ago, I left church and a woman that I had been in church with, used to go to church with for a long time. Her children grew up in my youth group. They're all grown now. She was on her way to church. She was late. She pulled up on this hill. There was a car that was turning. She weaved around to try to miss the car. Went over a hill. Was thrown out of her car and hit a tree. And then the car pinned her that tree. You know what? I walked into the emergency room with that family. And I looked at that woman. 
She only had one scratch. Right there. Unbelievable. She was gone. And I can promise you, she didn't wake up that morning thinking that it was going to be her last day. But one thing I know about her, she was ready. What about you? Those things happen. And they don't just happen to strangers. They happen to people that we know and people that we love. And God forbid that it happened to you. But if it were to, would you be ready? Here's the last thing. Most people that refuse Jesus when they're healthy usually reject Jesus when it comes their time to die. Why? Because the older we get, the harder our hearts become. This unrepentant thief proves the point. He's in excruciating pain. All of his senses are fully aware. His emotions are supercharged. His heart is pounding. He's struggling to breathe. He knows that time is running out. And you would think he would say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But he doesn't. He dies in his sin. Father, thank you for your word. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is here to bring conviction into our hearts and cause our conscience to come alive. And I ask you, Lord, that right now that you'd speak to every heart and, and give us judgment day honesty. Lord, we, we, we don't want to cause confusion and I, and, I, and I don't want to just question people for the sake of questioning people, but Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that you know, I don't know, that you know that they're not right with you, I pray, God, that you would, by the Holy Spirit, begin to quicken their conscience and let them know that that today is the day of their salvation that they cannot put it off that they don't need to let another moment go by but today God you would speak to them if you're here this morning and you're lost and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and he's saying I'm talking to you you are that thief you are the one who has put it off you have hardened your heart you have procrastinated and I'm calling you today If that's you, I want you to shoot your hand straight up and straight back down and say, that's me. God's speaking to me and I need to make things right with God. Thank you. Somebody else. Somebody else. Today, I need to know and know that I know. Now, for the rest of you that are saved, I didn't come this morning to preach a message about the cross. I come to call you to the cross. Okay? Time is running out. We are living in the last days. And the farther we get away from the cross, the more religious of a person that we really become. And he's calling us to the cross. As they sing and as they play.